There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombach, and we've got an awesome show for you coming up. This week, Centauri and I were joined by Denise Logan, the Chief Inspiration Officer of Chase What Matters, an organization that helps people focus on the idea that what you do is more than how you make money. We had a great conversation that covered her background, how we as Americans are conditioned to pursue work that can pay us more and more money over time, and how we can move past being defined by how we make money. Denise provided some great and practical questions to ask ourselves if we're not happy at our current careers. Stick around till the end, and she'll also give you some great advice on how to look at the new year. You can find out more about Denise at chasewhatmatters.com. That's chase-what-matters.com, as well as social media, which is listed in the show notes, and I definitely encourage you to check it out. Please like us on Facebook and share us with somebody who you think would benefit that's enough about that. Let's go. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining me as always is Centauri Miner. Hello, folks. Helping us move from awareness to action today is Denise Logan, the Chief Inspiration Officer of Chase What Matters. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Excited to have you. Centauri. This should be good. Why do you love name tags and I hate them? Oh, I, is that a true fact? Do I love name tags? I believe you do. You, 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 uh, you, I do collect you, them. You I go to a lot of events. So I have a lot of name tags. Um, why do you, I love? I don't know why I love name tags. I like it, the function of them, like being in a large group. We don't know folks. It's a very. It just makes their name apparent and accessible, so you're not fumbling over that. And um, it also, I collect name tags because I get to see what I've done over the last year, and also it kind of reminds me of what I need to ping back to to certain groups or certain things. Well, fair enough. Why do you hate them? How does someone hate name tags? I, I don't like. People trying to, to classify me and oh god, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that's I, not shocking. I, I, None of that's shocking. I don't know why I hate name tags because they're very, very, very um, useful. So. All of that makes sense. So I'm the bridge between the, the lover and haters of name tags. I agree with Centauri that having a name tag. When it just has the first name and maybe the person's company, mm. maybe. But what I really detest is going to an event where the name badges are color-coded. Oh, so you're like grouped into something. Right, because then people have this assumption, oh, you're a green. Oh, I don't need to talk to you. I'm only looking for people with the purple name badge oh. today. And I think we lose sight of the fact that everyone knows someone who knows someone. And that's a much better way to network. Except for the greens, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm pseudo value. That's really to, to, to go deeper. I've been in, I've been in working in financial stuff for 17 years, and whenever somebody reads something financial in my name tag, it's like, Ugh. and I'm the same way. I totally get it. So that's probably why I hate names. Ah, oh, that's great. So I don't like when they put your title on. I think the title is very limiting. And it's really a, a lot of the focus point that I have. So when someone asks me, what do you do? My answer is, I'm the Sparkle Fairy. Mm. Way better than, than mine, probably. <laughs> the Sparkle Fairy. And people will either lean in and want to know more. Or just completely, just turn away. Right. <laughs> and it's, it's, I'm good. <laughs> oh, super. 
<laughs> and it's such a good defining moment because are you in that place where you actually want to engage with someone? So I was at um, kind of my guilty side pleasures that I like to dance. That's my where I'd spend all my money and free time. So um, I was dancing at a bar in Chandler recently. And I'm dancing with a guy and he says, so what do you do? And I said, the two-step? <laughs> Because that's what we were doing. Right. And he said, uh, no, I mean, what do you do? And I said, if you lead it right, I might cha-cha. And he was so frustrated <laughs> with this moment because it was like, what do you do? I was like, wait, you want to know how I earn my money? Is that really like we're dancing in a bar on a Tuesday night? What's up with that? And he said, well, I just want to be able to relate to you. Ah, so knowing my job title isn't the best way to relate to me. And I think it's the piece that I watch for a lot where people are really connected. And if we are only what we do, and that's how we define ourselves, when we don't do it, do we not exist? Mm. Mm. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> when I'm out of the office, I just disappear. <laughs> it's a great question though. And, and, and I think that you're right. Because for many of us who have ever been out of work, that moment when you no longer have a good answer mm. to that question, what do you do, is terrifying. So people stop networking. They stop doing all kinds of things, and they get really panicky because how will I answer that question? What do I do? And I think there's so many better ways to answer that question. Yeah, that's what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> that's really interesting. My first experience with a lot of people getting laid off was after 2008 and I was doing, performing a, a leadership recruitment and development function for a company. And so I was interfacing with a lot of people and it was sort of, people were very much in limbo. And yeah. People do very much wrap their identity with, with their work or what their job is. Their profession, yeah. Well, and it can, be, it can become really distancing. So you think about um, stay-at-home mom. There's the, so what do you do? And then when she answers, I'm home with my children, there can be a disconnect. When, what if the way she answered that question was something different? Something about the value she's creating in the world, which is really what it's about. It's really not about, are you getting paid? And often I think that question, what do we do, is, <clears throat> well, it can look like a, I want to relate to you. It is a pegging question. When I ask you what you do and you answer, I now know, am I above you mm. or am I below you? Mm -hmm. Where am I in the, the class wow. system? And if you start thinking about that question that way, it's really offensive. And often it is one of the very first questions we're asked almost anywhere. Why is that? People like to categorize and label and, and try to understand things and make it easy for themselves. So going back to the color-coded name badges. Yes, right. You know, if you I... still like name tags? <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> and you might. And those pieces of, but what does the name badge signify? Mm -hmm. And what is the purpose of that? And when we use our job titles as our descriptions of who we are, when we reach a point closer to retirement, that becomes really frightening for people. Or when we experience a job loss. I never, until you said that, realized just how it might be insensitive to ask that question because you have no idea what people are, 
starts happening in their lives. And so something like that could be very triggering for some folks if they're in transition or, or uh, in limbo. So that's, that's very fascinating. That's a very nice way to look at it. You don't want to trigger somebody, but perhaps the other person should just be better prepared to answer correctly. Fair enough. Oh, correct. <laughs> I like this really Fair enough. interesting dynamic. But it's also... Well, Centauri's, right. Centauri's kind of a... He's, he's a more sensitive person. I'm a very nice person. <laughs> but it's also Relatively. about thinking, what do you make up in your mind when you hear a job title? Mm. So it's that, right? Someone sees financial, anything financial on your name tag, they automatically make an assumption. You can or can't help me. You can or can't. I can or cannot benefit from knowing you. And is that really what the purpose is in having a name tag? Hmm. Maybe. <clears throat> Probably a better solution would be to write my name and then not necessarily what my professional title is, but what it is that, that I do. Hmm. And what do you do? Right. That would be too long to actually. <laughs> <laughs> trying to be the best George Grombacher that I can be. And at the heart of it, I think that's what most of us are trying to do, is be the best mother, father, employee, employer, partner, whatever those other roles are. But somehow those get really devalued in our lives. Mm. Trying to bring some of that back. So can I tell you a story? Please do. <laughs> so I was working with a client who was a dentist. And he came to me, he was 23 years in his business. And he said, I make enough money, but is this it? Like, this is what my life is about? I think I'm going to close my practice and join the Peace Corps. It's like, oh, it might slow that train down a little bit. I don't claim to know what's right for you. But there's a lot between I'm a dentist and I'm in the Peace Corps. <laughs> and what had driven him to me was that he had a nine-year-old son. And someone asked his boy, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's kind of a dumb question to ask kids anyway. They have a limited repertoire to choose from. And he heard his son answer, I don't know, but I don't want to be like my dad. He's miserable all the time. Wow. Wow. Painful. Well, why don't you go to your room? And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> but painful to hear that. And he, he came to me and he said, I knew I was miserable. I just didn't realize I was leaking it everywhere. Mm -hmm. And when we dug in a little bit, not only was he leaking it at home, but at work, all of his staff knew he was miserable. And most of his patients knew he was miserable. And when he heard this from his son, his only answer was, I guess I have to go join the Peace Corps. <clears throat> and so we dug in, tried to figure out what could be a better solution for him. And I got him connected with a nonprofit that did dental implant repair on boys who had been brutalized in an African war kids captured preteen and turned into child soldiers. And the first thing they would do is yank the teeth out mm. of these boys to brutalize them. Because if you have no teeth, you'll pretty much do whatever else we tell you. And so I got him involved in doing one dental repair of one boy. And oh my gosh, you guys, the moment he saw that boy smile, everything changed for him. He I came bet. back to his practice completely reinvigorated, took in some investment capital, added two younger dentists, and built out an exit strategy. And if you met him at a cocktail party somewhere and asked him, what do you do? His answer would be, I rebuild young men's self-esteem. Mm. Wow. Which is a way different answer than I'm a dentist. It sure is. Wow. 
That's a great story. That is an awesome story. How we look at something, how we look at something, how you look at something makes all the difference in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just making such a small adjustment. Yeah. Um, Totally changed his perspective and probably his life. And now his son probably wants to be a dentist also. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe his son wants to do something that impacts someone's self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And think about the hundreds of careers he could choose to do that in a different way. And so it's funny that you start with name tags because I think those can be really limiting. If you're talking to someone at a cocktail party and he says, I rebuild young men's self-esteem, what's your next question? How do you do that? Right. Now, what's your job title? Right. <laughs> and if you saw a dentist, you might assume, I know what a dentist does. Right. Everyone knows what a dentist does, so I don't really have any questions. I know everything about this person. Right. Right. I know everything about them. <laughs> and maybe I can't make any money off them at this networking event, right. so mm. I don't need to keep talking to mm. them. That takes some solid confidence and belief and somebody says what do you do and you say I repair young people's confidence yeah or something like that because it's so different than what we've been accustomed to or conditioned to rather right it's it's his version of the sparkle fairy mm-hmm. 100%. <laughs> because if someone goes further with me about the sparkle fairy and says what's that then I can talk to them about how it's jump-starting someone's mojo when they've lost their why. Why are you doing this? The money is important. I mean, my landlord likes to get paid in money, not meaning. Mm-hmm. I've tried that. There's a public meaning. <laughs> she still wants a check every month. Are you sure? It's freaky. Before you make a decision. But on the days when things are challenging, it keeps me coming again and again because I know why I'm doing it. I know what matters. Yeah. No doubt about it. So for a little level setting, you've not always been the Sparkle Fairy. Uh-huh. You were you did some lawyering for a while. Yeah. So should I give you that little rundown? Please. Yeah. So I practiced law in Washington, D.C. for 15 years. And to be specific, condominium and homeowner association law. So I could make you take down the pink flamingo on your lawn if you were so inclined. Mm-hmm. And around the, the opposite fi- of the sparkle fairy. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much around the 15-year mark, I realized I could keep doing that work. It was lucrative. I was making enough money. Um, but I didn't know why I would stay. Mm-hmm. I, it wasn't satisfying. And so I merged my firm with a larger firm, got rid of my house, and bought a motorhome. And I took off for what I thought would be six months and turned into several years. Hmm. of traveling and tell you some stories about what that was like and what I learned. And then I spent the next 10 years uh, leading a financial services executive recruiting firm. So recruiting investment bankers, private equity, and venture capitalists. And over the course of that 10 years, what I saw is that we would move people from job to job and they were not getting happier. And every two to three years, they would cycle back through which is an excellent business model for people to get unhappy and come back. But I was like, what's what's happening here? Mm-hmm. Why are people not staying and making these, why are they not happier? So I left at the end of 2009 and did a research study to figure out what was driving that. Why weren't these 10 or 15 year moves and why were people not happy? 
And what I heard was that again and again, the reasons for moving were, I don't feel valued. Why am I doing this? And if I'm going to give up this much of my life, by God, I'd better make more money for it. And so people moved for money, but that wasn't really why they were moving. They were moving because it no longer was satisfying. Mm. And so for the last seven years, I've been Sparkle Fairy, and I work one-on-one with individuals in transition, helping them sort out what's next. So I say my clients are that. They're the what's-nexters. They've reached a transition point, and they're trying to decide, what is this? What comes for me? Why am I here? I have everything I thought I wanted, and it doesn't feel satisfying. Mm. What's wrong? So a typical client would be someone on the bridge of retirement or someone just in transition from job to job. Give oh. us an idea of what that is. Yeah. So um, they come to me at kind of three different times in their life. I'll say the, the middle 30s crowd, often it's um, around the time of a first child. And they're in that, oh my gosh, am I on track? There's a momentous experience, right? You have a young one. So you know that time when first child arrives is kind of like, oh my gosh, what am I doing with myself? So sometimes they come there. The next time I might see them would be in their kind of 48 to 54 range. Sometimes they're either side of it, but that's what has been typically called the midlife crisis, right? And I'm like, oh, this is much better than a sports car and a redhead. This will save you much more money. to do this work. But often what's triggering at that point is that people have come again to kind of an existential question about, is this all there is? I've been on this path following A, B, C, and now I'm looking at maybe another 10 years of work. What does that look like? And how will I know? And what will be my legacy? And then, if they haven't mastered the issue then, I'll see them in kind of the 62 to 66 range, where they're really getting close to retirement. And you think about what we do with our children. We prepare them to launch to college. We want them prepared, and off they go. But no one prepares us to launch into retirement. And they're facing a lot of these questions that we looked at earlier, which is, how do I answer that question? What do I do? And so many people will continue to work at something that's wholly unsatisfying because they don't know how to answer this other question. It's not easy, right? I think that we've been, again, conditioned or told or brainwashed into thinking that I should be pursuing money, right? Mm -hmm. Pursuing the job that I I, I should be a lawyer, I should be a dentist, I should be whatever, and I should be buying and consuming. I should have a BMW and a nice car or a nice house, a country club, whatever. <clears throat> so it's an impossible question to answer, but how do we break that earlier? Yeah, and what I find often is when those questions start coming up, often if someone goes to a peer, um, their friend will say, oh, I feel sad for you. You have everything you ever wanted. Stop whining. Or get a vacation house or get a nicer car. There's a consumer answer to it, as opposed to support for this deeper longing for what has my life meant? Because we don't know how long each of us will live. And when that question arises, I think it's actually worth taking seriously. Why now? Mm -hmm. This question is here. And so 
Yeah, this gives people a safer place to have those conversations than they often have with the simple shutdown answer. Hmm. Some of my clients are founders of businesses who are preparing their business for sale. And there are plenty of people who do the financial side of that and the legal and tax sides of it, the transactional side. I do the emotional care and feeding of the seller because what we see is often the seller gets partway through the sale and they get scared. They've reached a point where they think, who will I be? What will happen to me when I'm not running this business that I've devoted my entire life to? And sometimes then they will kill their own deal. They'll throw up a crazy deal term mm -hmm. that the rest of the deal team is like, where did that come from? That's out of nowhere. Yeah. And it's often the founder has reached a point where they're so terrified and there's no way for them to have that conversation with the people who are on the team. And so they will ask for something outrageous in the hopes that the deal... Stop the deal. Yeah. And that's really sad. Right. It wasn't my fault. They just wouldn't agree to terms of the deal. Right. So self-sabotage because what in the world would they be without the business? And what will I do with myself? And what right? will I do? You're facing... You go play golf. Yeah, but you know, it's interesting because that's I'm often the answer that I hear from sure. people around retirement. Like, yeah. I'll golf, I'll travel. I'm like, mm-hmm. Probably two years. Yeah. And then what? You're going to do that every day? Right. Got it. Right. And retirement for us will not look like retirement for our parents and grandparents. We are not going to be happy playing golf and waiting for Wheel of Fortune to come on and feel like that's a satisfying retirement. And so, so it's important. Even long before retirement, the statistics show that people who moved from an unsatisfying career into retirement also have an unsatisfying retirement. It stands to reason that they haven't changed, right? Yeah. They haven't ever figured this stuff out or thought about it or hashed it out. Yeah. And the place of meaning can come from so many places. It can come from reframing the job that you're presently in. So we could take another example beyond the dentist. I worked with a group of cardiologists, and they were fed up with the Medicare system. They were just like, oh, my God, if we have to fill out more paperwork, it's just hell. And they were super focused on the money. Now, like I said, the money is important, but we take another angle. And so I brought in a photographer to work with them. And we asked each new patient for six months to come with someone who is important to them and be photographed. And most of them, you think about cardiologists, they're often working with a particular population. Often they came with a grandchild who was important to them or a gaggle of grandchildren who were important to them. And then we lined the walls of this cardiologist's office with pictures of these patients and someone important to them. And after six months of that, we started to reframe what was really happening. And their answer to that what do you do question now would be, we make sure kids get more time with their grandpa. Mm. That is a way different answer when you're facing frustration in your work. Yes, we all face frustration in it, but the issue is, what am I doing? And why am I doing this? Because if you're only doing what you do for the money, it will only take you so far, and you will be unsatisfied and look for more money, which will work until you become accustomed to that dollar amount. And underneath the whole time, that question will still be nagging. What am I doing? So with your coaching, do you 
um, with the what's next piece, is it always another job? So it's, if someone is actually nearing retirement, what are some of the strategies that you, because oh. they're not going to work, they're not going to work anymore. So what are they going to do? They may work. So, um, I was working with a venture capitalist. Um, he was actually a private equity guy in New York, the founder of a firm. He was 63 and trying to decide if he'd raise his next fund, which is a 10 to 14 year commitment. And I said, really? Why would you raise your next fund? And he said, well, I just want to retire comfortably. I was like, all right, no one believes that. And if you believe that, the question is distortion because you've passed comfortability. And when we dug down under it enough, he said, what if I'm not important? Hmm. What if I don't matter anymore? Right now, everyone takes my call because I'm the guy with the money. And so we, what I did with him, we worked through a number of exercises to try to identify what drove him. And some of why he was staying in that particular work is he loved being around the young people. He loved being presented with new ideas. He loved the intellectual stimulation of it. And he really loved being feeling like his wisdom was valuable. His initial thought was, I'll go and sit on a number of boards, which, by the way, is exactly what he'd been doing as a private equity hire for the course of his career. Instead, I got him to look at an assistant professor role at a university where he could be surrounded by those young people and really continue to, to absorb the energy of that and where his wisdom would be valued. So that's something that's a little different. And the reason that he loves this is he can only, he can teach when he wants to teach. He doesn't have to be pinned down. And he can travel, he can play golf, he can do all of those things. But without having done this deeper work, he would have raised another fund. And then he could have faced this issue when he's 74 right. instead of Sixty-three. I think that these are awesome stories and, and examples, and there's so many of them. When you yeah. think about how many Americans are not engaged in their work, it's right. it's it's a massive number. It's well over half, if not two thirds of Americans. Right. And then I always like to think about how our minds wander half the time, anyway. <laughs> so it's like, man, these are really unhappy people. Yeah. Right. And 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 it's too bad. And I think that we're certainly, over the past couple of years, been talking more about purpose and finding what your purpose is. But that's easier said than done. And I think you do need to learn how to actually do that. Number one, yes, I would like to change my circumstances. So we, we have to do that. But then do I know how to do that? I probably need that skill. So... And purpose is a big, scary concept, mm-hmm. right? You say to someone, what's your purpose? They freeze. And there's this fear that there's only one and I have to know what it is. And it might be really scary. It might be something that means I have to give up all my stuff. I don't want that to be my purpose. Heck no, there's a, there's a woman, her name is, uh, now I start a story and can't remember her name. That's so embarrassing. <laughs> I've done that a million times. Um, and she talks about, you know, God give me this thing that I want, but then you're like, oh wait, yeah, but don't take my lamp. Right. <laughs> But I need to keep this stuff too. Right. right. I need this stuff. So give me something purposeful, but let me also keep my life. And I, right. we can have that, but it's about, so the word I use is meaning. Because meaning can come from a lot of different places where purpose feels like one big giant thing. And 
kind of along those lines, what I like to talk about also is just finding what your impact is. Hmm. And yeah. once you find your impact, you realize that I can get pretty good at this. Yeah. And then it does become potentially my passion. I'll become passionate about that. Yeah. But maybe, maybe not. And the question, too, is it, like impact is a good word. And the for me, a question that I'll, I'll often ask a client is, and how much impact must you make for you to feel like this has been impactful? Mm. So is changing one life enough? Is changing 500 lives mm. enough? So I work a lot around the concept of enoughness. I don't like the whole abundance, scarcity concept because mm. I think they are opposite ends of the extreme. I like to be in that place of sufficiency and enoughness because that's a hard concept mm -hmm. for many people. Such a hard concept for people. <laughs> and everything we've been talking about goes contrary to that, right? Here mm -hmm. as an American, and, and I love America, 100% mm -hmm. do. Um, but we are conditioned to want things that are more, better, and different. That right. flies totally contrary to the idea of, of living a contented life. Oh, you hit my buzzword. I love that. Because often people are afraid of contentment. And I'm like, ah, do you know that content and complacent are different words? It's a big time universe. And I think often people get those mixed up. Like somehow if I'm content, I'm a slacker. Mm -hmm. I am not meeting my potential. I was working with a client recently who was talking about whether she was meeting her potential. And I was like, ah, your potential at what? Because she also has some young children at home. And I'm like, are you meeting your potential as their parent? Are meeting your potential as a friend? Where are you meeting your potential? If the only sphere in which it counts is work, huh, how interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nope, just how much money I make. Well, yeah, and that is, right, that is the marker, and we're often tied to that. Mm -hmm. Well, I love that idea of enoughness, for sure, and really trying to, and that's always going to change. It's not like we make, plant our flag and now it's going to be static for the rest of our lives, right? Yeah. I get older and occasionally I will become more mature. Occasionally I will <laughs> in some areas. In yeah. some Venture. areas. <laughs> <laughs> not really a lot of them, but... Oh, but you know, it's, it, so when we think about how much is enough, so um, think back to your first job out of college. And you thought, if I make X, oh my gosh, that'll be so much. Oh. Rich. And right, and then you we, make X. Right, and then we increase, we increase. What the research has shown is that the closer we get to meeting our economic number, when we set a number, the more likely we are to add a multiplier or a zero to it. And that doesn't end. So huh. if that's how we measure when we have enough, it will never be there. Yeah. So Denise, tell us a little bit about, um, I, I'm curious, I'm, as you work with these clients and are um, approaching folks to do this work, do you ever get pushback or get folks that are just not interested for maybe because they just selfishly don't want to figure out what's next, they want to keep doing what they do? How do you overcome that? How do I you have conversations or you just let it, you just I let don't. it be? I think people are ready when they're ready and, you know, I, 
so many people talk about overcoming objections and doing the sales thing. I'm like, no. Either You're clearly not there. So Yeah, either you want to do this or you don't want to do it. And for me, um, I actually don't do marketing because my view is people come when they are ready. And most of my clients come through referral or I write a column that's published typically twice a month. And I have almost 80,000 subscribers to that. And so I write. And I write what's interesting and important to me and what I'm seeing happen in clients' lives um, with some shading. So right. <laughs> maintain Creative privacy. Liberties, yes. yeah. And often someone will see a, a column and realize, oh, that's me. Or that's my brother-in-law. Or someone who needs that work. And they come that way. So gotcha. I don't have to do the... But you really need it. Let me show you what matters. Different things matter to different people. Oh. Yeah. Where do you, how do you feel about the practice of gratitude? Do you work that into working with the clients? Yeah, I do love it. I do love it. And people see that in their own way. Like, do you have a gratitude practice that you do, George? Unfortunately, not consistently enough. <laughs> but yes, I try on a really pretty consistent basis to write down my five things on, at the end of every day that I'm grateful for. Yeah. Simple. Yeah. And it, I think for me, all of the practices that I use with people are really simple. I think the answer already is inside. We just need someone to light a little spark and then it reveals itself. I mm -hmm. don't claim to have a magical toolbox that is going to make it happen. And it's different. Some people just want to know, how do I make this job that I'm in more tolerable? Right. I want, remember one of the most fascinating things about your, uh, your story, which I would like to, uh, to talk a little bit about now, is the, when you were doing the RV thing, mm. you would go from, you would try out new jobs, yeah. which is so fascinating to me. So when I took off, and I had a 38-foot motorhome with a little Saturn that I towed behind it, and my two little dogs, and I took off, and I was in uh, my mid-30s, and I, if you ever play that game, one of these is not like the other, um, in a motorhome park, a 38-year-old single woman is the one that is not <laughs> like the other. <laughs> I did not have blue hair, and so I would back my motorhome in and inevitably someone would toddle over and be like, so what's going on here? How is it that you're out here at this time in your life? And I chose to not tell people that I had been a lawyer. I decided that I would let people guess. And it was a great way to oh, see how other people saw me. So I would say, what do you think I did? And it was fascinating because a lot of times I would get like gallery owner or artist or some piece that was so far from my own life. Wrong. <laughs> right. And it was super fun to just let people share with me what they saw. And I rarely did tell people that I was a lawyer. In fact, even now in my life, I that's rarely what I ever lead with. And if I do, I often think, oh, gosh, am I feeling like less than right now? I need to show them I'm someone. Um, and often people will say, if you hadn't told me, I wouldn't have known mm. you were a lawyer. So one of the things I started doing, I was in Southern California running outside with my dogs one morning from the campground. And on the left side of the road was a dairy farm. And on the right side of the road was a chicken farm. And I thought, 
gosh, I grew up outside of Detroit. I don't really know anything about farms. So I tied the dogs up to a post, rang the farmer's bell, and said, so I don't really know anything about farming, but if I promise to come every day for a week and do whatever you need done and you don't have to pay me, are you game? And he kind of stroked his chin a little bit. He goes, yep, wear boots. And so every day for a week, I showed up on the farm. And the first day, he had me bottle feed the newborn calves. I was a total salesman. Of course I was coming back the next day. Day two, I worked the milking machine. <laughs> day three, I drove a big tractor full of manure, which I thought being a lawyer had fully prepared me for that skill set. <laughs> yeah, no I did bookkeeping, and by the end of the week, I was shocked that I could go to the grocery store and buy milk. I was like, look how much goes into this. And that doesn't even include the truck that had to come pick it up and the processing and the truck that delivered it and the guy that stocked it. And it set me about on a path where over the next several years, one week out of every month, I did something like that. I'd go to pancake supper at the firehouse or the local chamber of commerce meeting, and whoever had the most interesting job that night, I'd be like, Centauri, can I just come to work with you for a week? You don't have to pay me, and I'll do whatever you need done. And sometimes that worked, sometimes <laughs> that didn't work. And I'm mostly glad I don't have to do any of those jobs. <laughs> I That's awesome. <laughs> but I rode a lobster boat in Nova Scotia, and I worked in a paint store and a furniture factory. And it gave me a reconnection to so cool. people have to do the jobs they're doing. And what about that is fascinating and enriching? Because people who feel their work is meaningful do it way differently. The guy who is mopping at the nursing home does his job way differently if he sees this as, I just got to mop up all this slop, or I'm improving the quality of life for people who are nearing the end of theirs. There's a way different energy that comes from that. When you and reframe, yeah. Yeah, and there's a sense of satisfaction. We don't all get to do, we'll call it, the best jobs. I don't know what that even means. I often say to clients, if all jobs paid the same and all had the same prestige, what job would you do? And it is rarely the one they are doing. Mm. What's one of the most common, do you think, probably working with kids or animals or something like that? Uh, Sorry, loves animals, by the way. You do that? That is the opposite of what is true. I shouldn't try like five kittens in your apartment. They will not stay alive. It is so different for people. The answers of what they would do. It's like if you were to, you know, why did you choose what you chose as your major? Often the choice was not theirs. They chose something they thought would be lucrative, as opposed to something that's so interesting right them. yeah that's the reason i chose my major that it was going to help me become, become an attorney and i guess it would have if i decided to go down that path but well, political science i don't really like politics that much so go figure <laughs> go figure right but and we're and so many times people are guiding their kids that way mm. so i worked with um a young woman in her early 20s, oh, I think she was just 20, a junior at ASU, and her dad was concerned because she kept changing majors. And I said, what if the real answer is that she doesn't have to have a major? What if 
we knew that 10 years from now, the things that will be most important are being a good communicator and being intellectually curious and being able to cross many barriers. And disciplines, yeah. Right. And what if that's what's really important? Does she need to choose a major? And he was just like, well, how will she get a job? There are many different things to be doing, and yet we're educating our children as if they have to choose when they're 18 years old. What's going to set them up for the rest of their lives. Right. And most people don't even use, you know, the majority of people do not use their degree 10 years later. We were just talking about this last week with a um, gentleman who's running for superintendent of schools here in Arizona, Mm. Jonathan Gilbert, um, really sharp guy, but talking about how kids... If they had however many classes they have, they had four A pluses and one C, it would not be the A pluses that they'd be really that concerned with. It would be the C, right? right? And how stupid is that? Right. Like you're obviously wildly interested or proficient or really good at these four things. Yeah. Yeah, we only concern ourselves with the thing that you're you're not. Yeah. And what do you love? Because those are the things. And so what I did with her is we said for one semester, and, you know, she was so discouraged when she came to me because – she changed multiple times. She just wasn't happy. She really didn't want to go back to college. And I said, for one semester, you will only choose courses that seem thrilling and interesting to you. And we looked at what was making, what made the difference for her. And it was about being in classes where she had more of a Socratic method, where she could really be interacting, and they needed to be smaller classes. And so for one semester, she just took what was interesting. Her grades skyrocketed, her engagement at school, and most of her peers said, I wish I could do that. Why can't they? Mm -hmm. Because they have parents who are forcing them into this narrow little hole because you need to know what you're going to be. Those jobs don't even exist yet. Right. Well, this is right. Right, those jobs (laughs) don't exist yet. And it's going to be a different world for sure, five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years. Um, we might not even work anymore. I'm sorry. I can't believe that. <laughs> can we have like, like driverless jobs? Yes, please. <laughs> you sure can. Yes. But, you know, to be in a job that you chose and then you have to stay. I hear a lot of people who have a law degree or an MBA and they're like, I paid a lot of money for this. Golden handcuffs. You right. got to stay. I'm a doctor, but I don't want to be a doctor anymore, but I have to. That's a horrible place. I feel like you need a different term for golden. <laughs> That's a lot more negative. Okay. Um, just handcuffs. I'll think about it. Yeah, but that, of, is, but that is the phrase, yeah, right? right? That you're well, so trapped because you've built your lifestyle around the money that you earn that now there's no way. How do out. you refer? That's so fascinating. That how would you have that conversation with the doctor? It's like my wife or husband expects mm-hmm. me to make this amount of money. My kids expect these certain things. How do I take do self care and say I don't want to do this thing anymore? Do people actually do that with to their families and say I'm done? Like I'm not doing this anymore. Well, it's interesting because the the way you phrased it was, do they do that to their families? Uh, often, I will work with them on having difficult conversations. Hmm. And I worked with a hedge fund manager. Oh, this guy was so interesting. I was in New York, and I knew he had been unemployed for about six months. It was our very first meeting. And I met him at a Starbucks, and he comes in dressed, you know, dressed to the nines, the cufflinks, the, like his 
aftershave kind of preceded him a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he sat down across from me and I said, wow, did you have an interview this morning? He goes, no. I was like, mm, what's the, the get up? <laughs> You're loaded for bear. <laughs> and he said, this is the way I dress every day. I'm like, but you've been unemployed for six months. He had not told his wife. Oh, no. Had not told his spouse, had not told his best friend. That's a big lie to keep up. Yeah. The only people who knew were me, the people at the firm where he had... Doesn't work anymore. Yes, where he had left, and the outplacement coordinator and a few job interviews that he had been on. And he said, I can't tell her. If I tell her this, she will take those kids and leave me. And it was heartbreaking for me to sit across from him at Starbucks and have, we worked together for quite a while, and to have the conversations about, you have to have this conversation, and you have to know this now. And if she does leave and take the kids, are you kidding me? You were about to kill yourself for the next 15 years? For what? Why would you do that? And so he had been you know, drawing down money to pay for the country club membership, to pay for the yacht club membership, all of those things. But it's shocking how many people do it rather than have the conversation. And it's about having the difficult conversations, which are this is killing me. And learning, you know, in a good marriage, your partner will be, "I, I want more for you. And yes, we will, we may not be able to make the adjustments quickly, but we will make those adjustments. And oftentimes people stay in a job where they are unsatisfied because they don't want to have the conversation because facing the reality of their life seems harder. Wow. Not a red, and maybe this is the wrong answer, or perhaps it's the wrong question. (laughs) But you you can answer it first and then ask the question. I'll go ahead and answer it and then (laughs) I'll just keep talking. But you go ahead and change the question. Um, Is it better to coach people up to help find their purpose in their current work or is it best to try to find a different job altogether a mm. different field mm. and it probably matters it's probably different for everybody so it is different but um i'll often start with what if you needed to stay in this job what if there was no way out mm. that this was the job you had to stay in for the rest of your career you can't leave this firm you must stay what would have to happen to make it be different? What would you have to have to make this be tolerable? What, what conversations would you need to have at work? What, so that's often where I start if someone is like, I need to leave this job and go somewhere else. And it probably comes from my own history as well as from uh, the recruiting practice where I watch people hop and they would hop and never have asked for what it was that they really wanted at that firm they would make up I'll never get it or if I ask and show I'm disloyal I'll be fired and so sometimes you're just trading out the faces of the jerks you know for the faces of the jerks you don't know (laughs) so I often will start there as the why why would you leave this job why this what a wonderful, uh, I suppose, to a degree, working with people doing homeowners disputes and things like that. <laughs> certainly a, a wonderful proving ground for working with humanity, <laughs> but doing the recruitment and the placement, what, what a great primer for, for this kind of work. 
Yeah, and I often wonder what might it have been like if there was a sparkle fairy when I was preparing to leave my practice. Right. What what might I have done differently? And some of the impetus for that, um, I was part of a, a community association uh, professionals group. So it was managers and lawyers and accountants and everybody who served that community. And they brought in a facilitator for one of the board meetings. And I'd been on this board for many years, knew most of the people. And this facilitator came in, had us all stand in a circle. And, you know, most of us hate those things. It's like, don't try to make me be nice with the people in this group. And the question she asked each of us to answer, and we had to go around in a circle, was what's, how would you describe yourself without using a traditional moniker? So instead of saying, I'm Denise, I'm a lawyer, or I'm Denise, I'm a mother, or tell the group something that would describe you differently. And I heard some amazing things as it went around the room. There was someone in the group who was restoring an old car secretly in the garage to surprise his 16-year-old son. I was wondering, how the heck you surprise, you know, how do you do that without him knowing? Um, and there were a lot of things that were coming out about people's lives. And as it worked its way around the circle, I was like starting to sweat because <laughs> I realized I had nothing. There was no other part to my life other than Denise the lawyer. And I was pretty scared. As it got a little closer to me, um, I took my purse and excused myself to the ladies' room, except I left. <laughs> I oh, left, wow. I left the event. It's pretty. <laughs> I did. I got in my car. I was living in Alexandria, Virginia, and I drove home in the rain crying because I realized this is all I am. I have nothing else to answer because my life had gotten so narrow and my practice and making money and serving my clients was all I had. And it set about a chain reaction that probably culminated in me running off in a motorhome. Nice. So I don't want to do any more of those group activities. <laughs> <laughs> we'll not be standing in a circle talking about. <laughs> All right. So for folks that are listening, I, I really love the question that you asked before you tell people to throw the baby out the bathwater and just quit your job. Yeah. Um, what, what would have to change for you to be able to stay here or something yeah. to that effect? Yeah. Um, give me a couple other things that people can self-assess. Say, okay, I'm not... I really don't like what I'm doing, right. but. What did I know when I was interviewing for this job that I didn't allow myself to know? Because we almost always know those things mm -hmm. and don't ask the questions. Mm. That's another question. What were the questions that you could have asked before you took this job that you didn't ask? And why didn't you ask them? And often that's because we feel in a one-down position. We feel like, I'm afraid to know the answer. If I know the answer, I might not take this job. No, 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 no. <laughs> exactly. Fingers in ears. And so those are, re even before they're about to take another job in the same industry, I'm like, those are questions you have to ask yourself. And what was it when you took this job that you said, I have to accomplish A, B, and C? before I ever leave this job. Mm. Mostly people say, I don't know, I didn't have any of those. I'm like, well, how do you know it's really time to leave then? How do you know you've accomplished what you came here to this job for? And if you don't know the answer to that, let's figure that out. And before you take another job, you should be able to answer 
all of these questions about that job. If I'm going to move from company A to company B, what are the three things that I have to accomplish to feel like I did what I came here for in company B? And are those things actually achievable where you're going? And are there resources for that? And will you have the capacity to do it? And if not, and you don't have an answer to that, why are you taking this job? Because you'll just move there and leave again. And I think movement is horrific. It's hard on the company. It's hard on the people. It's hard on your family. I don't advocate it. So if you're going to move, let's know why and what's going to be different. Wherever you go, you have to take yourself with you. Mm-hmm. That is true. <laughs> you do. And that's the common <laughs> that denominator. When, when someone's moved again and again, I'm like, what's the common denominator mm. here? You've <laughs> been on <laughs> What could it be? <laughs> and what are those questions? Like we might go back three, four, five jobs sometimes and ask those same things. What did you know? What did you not let yourself know? What did you not want to know so that you could take this role? The power of good questions. Mm, hopefully. There's a lot of them right there. Hmm. You have a book coming out. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. It's called Chase What Matters. It's really focused on uh, that intersection between what are you here for and what do you do. Awesome. When will it be out? Where, where will I be able to find it? Summer, I'm hoping. Summer. <laughs> <laughs> appreciate that. Well, excellent. Um, As our time is drawing to a close, what else would you like to share that we have not talked about? No, I did something interesting in December. Um, I wrote a column about turning the page. And so it was about the questions to ask as you close this year and look to the new year. Mm. And um, those series of questions are on my website. And I think it's a useful tool. You know, find a a quiet hour and a beverage of your choice and a book, a little journal, and pop through them. I think it's really instructive. And I love that. Much better than looking at uh, setting some New Year's resolution just before the stroke of midnight when you maybe had a little too much beverage. Right. <laughs> and that's on your website? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the website is? Chase What Matters, and it's chase-what-matters. Dot com, and there's a dash between the words, so you remember to pause. Chase ah, dash it. what dash matters. I like it, and we'll have that listed in the notes of the show, obviously. So, Santari, what have we forgotten to talk about? Nothing. Answered all my questions. That was great. Thanks it's for coming fun. on. So fun to be with you guys. Thank you yeah. for having me. Denise, thank you very much. Well, if you like what you heard, give the show a like. Find us on Facebook. Like that too. Leave us a review. Uh, Check out the information on Denise's website she was talking about in terms of the goal-setting or thought-provoking questions um, for 2018 coming up. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real.